46 billion years, that's the distance that we can see from the Earth to the furthest edge of the universe, if anybody knew that or not. Um, the observable space and the universe, I should add. And in the observable space in the universe, there are two trillion galaxies. But inside the average human body, there are 37.2 trillion cells. Now, few would argue that the physical world is amazingly complex and intricate, but some would argue that physical creation stands alone, uh, that creation is without a creator, a uh, big bang, if you will, without a big banger. Um, people believe, or people who believe that there is no God are atheists, meaning no God. Still others think that there is a God, even a creating sort of God, but God's sort of like the watchmaker that wound up the watch, put everything together, and then took his hands off of it. And if that's what you believe, then you're a deist. A deist believe there is a God, but he's not perhaps active with the creation that he's made. Agnostics say, who knows if there's a God? Agnostic means no knowledge. We simply don't know him. And Christians say there is a God who made the universe, which is most certainly larger than the observable universe. There is a God who has made the cells in our body, which we are learning are increasingly more complex than we had once believed, and that this God is intimately involved in the creation he has made and has made himself meaningfully known to us through Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, and through Jesus Christ. The implications of atheism, of deism, of agnosticism, and Christianity on the purpose and value of human life are incredible. Humans might be a great cosmic accident. They might be created by God and left to do their own devices. Or we might be purposefully made in God's image, a God who is astoundingly powerful and intimate with all that he has made. So this morning, uh, we read Psalm 139, and this psalm is attributed to David, uh, and it helps us to understand the attributes of God, what God is like. Um, psalm 139 explains four of God's divine attributes, that God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and holy. Contrasted with atheism, Psalm 139 says, there is a God. Contrasted with deism, Psalm 139 says God is intimately involved with his creation. And contrasted with agnosticism, Psalm 139 clarifies that not only can we know God, but we can't get away from him. So this morning, we're learning four important attributes of God and what those attributes mean to us as creatures. So you have it in front of you. God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and holy. And what we mean by that is that God is all-knowing. God is ever-present. God is all-powerful and holy. So what does it mean for God to be omniscient? And I don't know if you've ever thought uh, of someone being able to read your mind and know your passions and convictions and your feelings and the attitudes of your heart, even your dreams. Would you want that? 
Would you want someone to know you that completely, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, about you? Laurie Stein in the Secular Review, uh, this is the Paris Review of Psalm 139, writes, an old boss of mine used to claim that the most seductive words are not, I love you, but I understand you. Surely a deep need is expressed by the line, thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. That fantasy of someone who knows your every move, who sees the entire picture, who looks out for you all the same, may be pernicious or childish, but how do we outgrow it? To hear the poem, anyhow, is to feel the problem. In Laurie Stein's review, she expresses her desire to be known in a, in a Psalm 139 sort of way. And yet, she dismisses this view as pernicious or um, uh, even subtly harmful or childish. But she comes to this conclusion because of her assumption that such a knowledge of her can't be real. Does God know us intimately? And would we want God to know us intimately all the time? Would we want God to know our words before we speak them and our thoughts before we think them? Who could know all of our thoughts and still love us? Isn't that our fear? Who could know everything about us and still love us? Psalm 139 posits that when God created all things, he did not relinquish the knowledge of all things or the relationship with all things. He didn't just wind it up and let it go. God knows not only the number of the hairs on our head but, and how many trillion cells make up our bodies, but our thoughts, our attitudes, the intentions of our hearts and minds. In fact, there is nothing that God doesn't know because it is the very nature of God to know all things. God is omniscient. Therefore, the psalmist says we're hemmed in. It's like we've got a hedge in front of us and behind us on the sides. We can't get out of this situation. Whatever we attempt to do or think that is not right is not secret. Whatever we attempt to hide on earth is open scandal in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? In the middle of doing something you know is wrong, that it's not secret. It's open for God to see. On the other hand, we have a creator who knows the good and the bad about us and is determined to have a relationship with us even... He has even developed a path for us to have a relationship with him and be restored to him through Jesus Christ. The God who knows us wants us to know him through Christ, the God who made trillions of galaxies and the trillions of cells in our bodies wants us to know him. So where can we find that God? I don't know if you've ever heard, has anyone heard the story of uh, Joe Lewis and Billy Kahn? This is like a really old thing. Joe Lewis, not one of you. Oh, one. Okay, one reluctant hand. All right, Joe Lewis and Billy Kahn. Here's the deal. On June 18, 1941, in front of a crowd of 54,487 fans, so on the polo grounds in New York City, the Lewis-Kahn challenge turned out to be one of the greatest heavyweight boxing fights of all time. Billy Kahn, nicknamed the Pittsburgh Kid, was the light heavyweight champion. Isn't that an oxymoron? Uh, the light heavyweight champion and highly regarded contender, but he refused to gain weight for this challenge. Instead, he said he would rely upon a hit and run strategy. 
So in response, Lewis lost weight so he could get below 200 pounds, and he said this about Khan, he can run, but he can't hide. The fight went 13 rounds, with Khan having the best of Lewis for the first 12 rounds. But in the end, in the 13th round, Lewis was right. Khan could run, but he couldn't hide. Lewis knocked Khan out and ended the fight. Ever since that time in the American public, the phrase has become popular, you can run, but you can't hide. Now, when it comes to God, Joe Lewis's adage rings true. You can run, you can run, you can run, but you can't hide when it comes to God. You might even say that Psalm 139 is the you can run, but you can't hide sort of psalm. To the question, where do we find God? The psalmist answers with another question, where can I go to get away from God? Adam and Eve asked that question. Where could they go to get away from God? When they sewed fig leaves together to conceal their nakedness, hiding from God in God's garden? The prophet Jonah asked that question when he decided to run from God because he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Psalm 139 is attributed to David, who had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, murdered. And we wonder, is that what David was wanting too? Where can I go to get away from God? The answer is, you can't get away from God because God created us as contingent creatures. You know what a contingency is? It's a dependence. God created us to be dependent upon him. We're not independent, even though we might want to be. And I wonder if any of us have been trying to run away from God in any way. Have we been trying to sew fig leaves together so that we could hide our shame from God? Have we been trying to board that boat bound from Tarshish when God has called us to go to Nineveh? You can't hide from God, not in heaven and hell, not in life and death, not in near and far, the darkest night, because we are God's creatures who have been given free will that we might run away. We might run from God. We might run to God, but we can't hide. We might not know God, but we can't not be known by God. I know it's a double, double negative there. Um, God, who created us, knows us and is with us. And he has given us a way to be known by him, to know him. He has given us a way to be forgiven for what we are ashamed of. And to find worth not in what we do, but in who we are. When I meet with people for counseling, it's remarkable how similar some of the struggles are that people face. Uh, we as, as people have perhaps 10 different things that, that you know, there are variations and there's a lot of creativity in how to sin, but, uh, but it comes down to just, you know, a, f a few different things, you know, at, at the root of it all. And in Romans 3.23, um, it says, here's, here's the comment on that. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Everybody's messed up. I started, when I had my first counseling class, he said, the um, teacher started and he said, uh, you know, we're all used cars, folks. We've all got dents and dings and problems under the hood. Every one of us. 
We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But after Romans 3.23 comes Romans 3.24, all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So fig leaves don't make a very good covering for our sin, but the blood of Christ does. God made us in such a way that we're built to be in relationship with him. We can't be in relationship with him because our sin separates us from God, but what can bring us together with God is the blood covering of Jesus. Jesus did the great exchange for us, our unrighteousness for his righteousness. And so when we put our faith in him, we are right before God. We can be in a right relationship with God, and we can know God. Maybe God has called you into relationship with him through Jesus Christ, but you've been running. If you have been running and trying to hide from God, just encourage you to reverse your direction. God knows you. He sees you. And stop running from him and run to him. Do you see God's omniscience means that the life he has given us is a life examined by him? a life weighed by him. And the gift that he offers is a gift of continuous relationship with our creator. We can't run from him. We can't hide from him. We can run, but we can't hide. But when we stop trying to hide, we know where to run. So we've talked about God's omniscience and um, his omnipresence. He knows all things. He's everywhere. He can't get away from him. And then he's also omnipotent. Um, verse 13 of Psalm 139 says, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. When God created us out of his unlimited power, um, he created, when God made creation, he made these two trillion stars and perhaps more. He made the, all the cells in our body. He did all these sorts of things. This is an expression of God's incredible power. Uh, as I said, few would argue that the physical world is amazingly complex and intricate. Um, but Psalm 139 says that this amazingly complex and intricate creation was made by a creator. That creation did not spontaneously generate there is no big bang without a big banger. There is a creator behind all these things. This isn't a, a psalm that is apologetic. It's not something that's arguing uh, the fact. It's just stating the fact, saying there is a creator. And this creator is amazingly powerful. In some ways, this, this, this uh, power is, uh, is other psalms and other places in Scripture talk about the immensity of God's power and creation um, but then this Psalm 139 sort of talks about the scope of a person and God's power. Uh, God's expression of power through creating humanity, men and women. And so we come to the question, uh, and this relates to the sanctity of life, is what is life? When does it begin? Who gave it? Does it have value? How important are these lives? Um, can we gratuitously kill anybody, or can we gratuitously kill certain classes of people? 
If people are mentally challenged, or if they are too old, or too sick, or too infirm, or too young, or they're inside the womb, not outside the womb, can we kill them? In what conditions can we do so? We started life no larger than a grain of sand, and even at that stage, all the genetic information necessary for our development was present. Hair and eye color, skin tone, height, even giftedness as a pianist, vocalist, computer programmer, it was all already there. Between weeks three and four, our hearts were beating, arms and legs were just beginning to form, the face, eyes, ears, nose, and mouth were beginning to take shape. At five weeks of development, we were 10,000 times larger than we were at fertilization. Think about that, 10,000 times. One inch long, weighing no more than a peanut. Brain waves are present. If our growth continued and didn't taper at the second month, our birth weight would exceed 10 tons. Think about that, moms. <laughs> at the end of month two, all our organs were present. Most were functioning, although some needed more time to develop. The irises of our eyes developed, fingernails are present. We could curl our fingers around an object. Some had hiccups, taste buds on the tongue, tooth buds, gums were present. By month three, you were smiling, making funny faces, practicing breathing the amniotic fluid in and out of your lungs. Twenty of your teeth were formed and waiting to develop. You weighed about an ounce in weight and were moving around like crazy. At 15 weeks, loud sounds might have startled you. Quiet music might have calmed you down. I remember when our youngest was inside my wife Asha's womb and we were at a, a violin um, concert and I felt the baby moving to the music. I was like, Wow. This is really, really cool. It's amazing. So when did life begin? Was it at birth or conception or someplace in between? At what, which one of these stages did life begin? An unborn human is clearly alive. The New Testament indicates that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was in his mother's womb when we have that interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ inside the womb, I believe Jesus might have been a zygote, and John the Baptist was an unborn fetus. But the, the difference between them being inside and outside the womb was not the difference between them being alive and not alive. It was an atmospheric difference. It was an environmental difference. But it wasn't a difference of life. Their lives began before they were born. My daughter, who was moving to the music, her life began before she was born. By month four, you were about eight inches tall. Your mom could feel when you moved, and you could suck your thumb, which now had its own unique fingerprint. By month five, your weight increased to 15 ounces. Your hearing was very acute. You liked to swim around in amniotic fluid. Eyebrows have developed. By month six, you've gained another pound. Your hand coordination increased. In my case, I think it took longer. And you can move your thumb in opposition to your fingers. Your eyes are now open, though there's not much to see. So how valuable is human life? And we say that humans were made in the image of God. Therefore, they have incalculable value. 
When I was in um, junior high, my grandfather gave me a watch, and it wasn't this kind of a watch. It wasn't even one on your wrist. It was the kind that you kind of hang from the chain, and, uh, and he had received it when uh, he was in high school and had the inscription. I can't remember the year. It might have been like 1917 or something or other, but that watch to me had incredible value. Uh, I might have bought a watch like that just for fun or whatever, but it had incredible value, not just because of the watch itself, but because of who gave it. And in this case, life has value, not just because of life itself, but because God gave it to us. Our almighty God gave us life. And God knew before anyone else what the gender of my children were. He knew their talents. He knew what they would say. He knew how they would sin. He knew all those things. It's sort of like we're unwrapping the package over time, but he knew what was inside because he gave the gift. So the lies we believe as a nation regarding abortion are many. Number one, that unborn children are not fully human and therefore can be killed with impunity and a clear conscience. Number two, since the mother plays host to this child who is completely dependent upon the mother, she should decide whether this child lives or dies. And number three, it is better for the mother to be unencumbered by an unwanted pregnancy than for the child to be born in less than ideal circumstances. Now, about 28% of women between the age of 15 and 64 have had an abortion. So statistically, in this room, we have women who have had an abortion, I'm sure. Um, and I want you to know that if that is you, um, God forgives you for that abortion. It's not right, but it's forgivable under Christ. And it's something that if you've never dealt with it or never thought about it before, it's something that needs to be dealt with. It's something that you need to pray about and, ask and seek God's forgiveness on. And know that he can and will do that. And God cares for the unborn just like he cares for anyone else. But it shouldn't be something that you live in um, shame or perhaps you've never really understood uh, how that's affected your life. But I encourage you to, to take the time and work through that. We as a congregation need to think about how we can together work for the, for the sanctity of life. How we can communicate well with a culture that doesn't necessarily believe what we do, uh, how we can be gracious in, in this, how we can help people understand um, that life is precious. And also, there are people that are in difficult circumstances, and it might be that God allows us to minister to young men and women um, in those circumstances and to help shepherd them and disciple them in the process and provide resources they, they don't otherwise have. So I want to encourage us in that. So we were just talking about the power of God expressed through the creation of human life. And then we have God's holiness. Um, God's holiness in this psalm is expressed in three ways. And the first part, we feel pretty comfortable with. The second part, not so much. Actually, the second two parts, probably not so much. So God's thoughts are precious, right? And then the psalmist talks about slaying the wicked. We don't feel so good about that. And then third, um, search my heart. We're not sure if we want that. 
But um, we'll start with God's thoughts being precious as we make our decisions and the details of our lives. Do we ever ask the question, what does God think about that? What does God think about that? As we're planning out all the different things that we plan out, do we ever pray and seek God's will in that? And some of us do probably regularly, and some of us don't as much. And I, I confess that sometimes I'm spot on in that, and other times I'm like, whoa, what was I thinking? How did I get here? And, you know, God forgive me, help me to get back on that path. What are God's thoughts? Because that is the path towards holiness, understanding what God thinks. Well, how do we know what God thinks? Well, we know what God thinks because he's written it in his word. We know what God thinks because he reveals it through his Holy Spirit. Uh, we know what God thinks because he speaks through his people. And so we want to seek and know the will of God. But what about this part, slay the wicked? So the, as the verses go, it says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God, how vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they'd outnumber the grains of sand. When I'm awake, I'm still with you. And then, oh, by the way, would you slay the wicked? Like that had never, God had never really, that thought had never really occurred to God. Would you just slay the wicked? That would take care of everything. Um, they speak of you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. So this is the wicked are people that speak against God. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Okay, what's your comfort level? Like, you know, zero to 10 here. You know, it's probably not a 10, right? Anybody here a 10? Com completely comfortable with that? Uh, anybody a zero? Yeah, maybe, maybe we're kind of between that zero and five range here. Well, here's the deal. Which church was just really... God wanted to spit them out of his mouth in the book of Revelation. Can anybody just I mean, go ahead and shout it out if you know it? Come on, somebody knows that. Be bold. Leo. Laodicea. Okay, Laodicea. And, and God wanted to spit them out of his mouth because they were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. They did all and said all the right things, but they were not passionate about it. Is this psalmist passionate against evil? Yeah, he's absolutely passionate against what is wrong and wicked and evil. And I think as Christians, we need to be passionate for what is good, passionate against what is wrong. We need to not be lukewarm about what's right and wrong. And we may not, might not use the same psalmist language, but we need to have the heart of God. God's heart. What does God think about the sanctity of life? What does God think about various different cultural issues? Are they right or are they wrong? And are we standing up for what's right? And then search my heart. Do you think God really needs to search your heart? I mean, we just said that God knows everything you're thinking. He knows your passions. He knows the words before they're on your tongue. He knows where you're going to go before you know where you're going to go. Why does God need to search my heart? I'd say that God knows what's already there, but God needs to be invited to search our hearts so that he will be 
a welcome guest. It's almost more about us than it is about him. Search my heart. Come on in. God has given us the ability to run from him, but not hide from him. And we just say, I'm not going to run anymore. Take a look. There's some stuff in there that stinks. There's some stuff in there that I think is getting better or, or more drawn to you. But go ahead and take a look at this and help me to follow you. Search my heart. These are the words of Isaac Watts about Psalm 139. He said, Lord, thou hast searched and seen me through. Thine eyes commanding with piercing view, my rising and my resting hours, my heart and flesh with all their powers, my thoughts before they are my own, are to my God distinctly known. He knows the words I mean to speak, ere from opening lips they break. Within the circling power I stand, on every side I find thy hand. Awake, asleep, at home, abroad, I am surrounded still with God. As we kind of bring this all together and realize that God knows all things. We can't get away from God. God's all-powerful. He's holy. And so we're sort of hemmed and hedged in. But our expression as Christians, as people that God's created, should not be to try to run from God. It shouldn't be to try to get away from God. It shouldn't be to sew fig leaves together. It shouldn't be to, um, to, to live in a place of shame and fear. But to say, you know, there are some things that are true about me that are not right, not good. But I know that you love me. I know that you created me. I want to have a relationship with me. And so I want to encourage each one of us today as we meditate on Psalm 139 throughout this day and maybe later to invite God and say, I'm not going to run. I'm not going to try to run. Search me, search my heart, and know my ways. Be an invited guest. Later, after the uh, Lord's Supper, and, and uh, we'll be having a couple songs, and there'll be some people in the back to pray for you. It might be that, um, that you want prayer for any number of things that came up here uh, during the message or during Scripture read or earlier in the service. And, uh, or it might be that you would like to invite Christ into your life and have a relationship with him. I encourage you to go and, uh, and, and pray. Pray with those who are, are there to pray for, uh, with you. Be towards the back during the last couple songs. Um, and if you have put your faith in Christ recently, if you do so today, uh, if you would let me know. I don't ask, you know, hey, everybody come up front here, raise your hands, or, you know, we, we, we don't actually do that too often here. But, um, but we do need to know because there are next steps and there are ways to grow in Christians, and we want to we help you do that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you for um, <clears throat> your word. Thank you for Psalm 139, the psalm about being able to run, but not being able to hide. The psalm that explains that you really know all things, you're everywhere, that you're all-powerful, you're holy. There are some things about you that have direct implications upon us, and we sometimes think we can be independent. 
that we are created as contingent creatures. So God, I pray that you would work on our hearts and help us to invite you to guide us and lead us, to forgive us, to bring us back into relationship with you through Christ. Pray that you work on our hearts together today for those purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.